to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. This is the week we've been uh, really uh, reimagining uh, roundtables, meetings, gatherings. I uh, er early in my public sector life, I had the pleasure of hosting events where the resulting action was memo, writing memos. Memos. I felt like, in many ways, my wife often called me the chief memo officer because there was a lot of uh, writing and thinking, but. Early in our tenure, we shifted the mindset from memo writing to product development or uh, you know, prototyping, if you will. And we wanted to bring that culture and ethos to the Kennedy School uh, this week, which I think is already here, but maybe build upon it in a very concentrated way. On uh, Monday, uh, we want to describe two of those examples just to give you a flavor for what uh, happened earlier in the week, and then engage in a conversation about what it might mean, if you want to get involved, it's open participation, what have you. Uh, on Monday, we had gathered stakeholders from the public and private sector focused on labor market data. And the, I'll share the story that was the lead up to why we did that, but uh, the, pr the, the presupposition was, if we could do a better job instrumenting the labor market with open data, we might begin to think about human capital the way we think about investment capital and making sure that we all find our true talents and match them up against our opportunities. And if, you know, if we were just as successful at you know, analyzing, you know, Frank has really smart capabilities on certain attributes and he's got a great work ethic and is protecting, you know, so if, if an equity analyst was studying Frank with the same rigor as uh, perhaps we do uh, the stock market, we might be able to make sure that Frank is matched up in the absolute best place in the world for his talent. The second uh, topic was on open health data. As the uh, President's uh, Affordable Care Act starts to kick in, it had two dimensions. One, the most prominent one, which is to expand coverage. But two, the more, I believe, uh, uh, economically transformational to actually shift the entire healthcare delivery system to move 17% of the GDP away from maximizing the treatment options after you're sick to doing everything in its power to ensure you remain healthy. And that shift from focus of uh, taking care of the sick to uh, keeping us healthy will move uh, a large swath of the economy and data is at the center. So let me take a minute on each, and Nick, you can help gauge the pace of the conversation in terms of where we started. In the, each of these has a chapter one, a chapter two, and a chapter three. So chapter one on labor market data. When Nick and I were in the administration, among other government data sets, we had asked the Department of Labor to post more open uh, information so that the public could better understand what was happening in the labor market. But we were very particular around aiding veterans who were transitioning to the civilian economy. We were acknowledging that for many, this is the stuff that's embarrassing, the veteran unemployment rate at the time had nearly been double that of the civilian unemployment rate. And this at a time when you know, just every CEO would naturally say, of course I believe in our veterans and they have skills and we should value them. But when it came to the HR process, 
that what they were doing in the military didn't necessarily pass the HR screen for companies who were looking to hire. And so even on Monday when we had our student uh, conversation, a, a veteran uh, was here and said, uh, according to the you know, translator, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm basically nothing better than a security guard or a traffic cop, or a tra traffic guard, meaning someone who can move, move uh, human flow. And, and today he's the CEO of a technology startup. So somehow the, the translation of skill didn't quite match his true talent. So phase one, we asked the private sector to voluntarily open up the job postings that were associated with an explicit veteran hiring commitment. The idea being, if every employer in America was interested in hiring veterans, they could communicate that by putting some invisible ink or metadata on the job postings, and then the internet search engines could go find all of those job postings, in Nick's words, hoover them up, and then allow us to expose all of those job postings as open data. And this uh, led to uh, roughly millions of job postings that were made available through the Veterans Job Bank at really no marginal cost uh, to the employer or the taxpayer, but just using the information in a more uh, efficient manner. Chapter two, after leaving the administration, I worked with LinkedIn, Monster, uh, Workday, and a number of other private sector companies to say, what if we were to basically grab that hose of open data and begin an analysis to say, what is it that employers are actually looking for? What are the underlying skills? So we ran it through the LinkedIn proprietary skills engine and said, here's what we think the skills are that the employer is looking for, even if they didn't write it in the job description. And then let's take a look at the unemployed veteran population, because they fill out forms in the government. So there's actually a set of data that is, what are the unemployed veteran skills? And those are often held by state governments. So we mapped the skills of those who are job seeking and the skills of those in demand by the, the employers. And we opened up all the data to researchers. And the research team at the corporate executive board had the headline. Unfortunately, nearly every entry level tech job posted by a, a, an employer looking for veterans could be filled by every unemployed, all the jobs could be filled by unemployed veterans at that time in Virginia, who were ne may not have had the headline title of a related job, but based on the computer modeling, were tech trainable. That is, for very short bursts of time, they could be tech trainable. So here you have this like estimated match. Whether it's an accurate prediction or not, it's assuming that every job could be filled, and yet today, none of those jobs were going to vets. In this particular story, it was the employers weren't necessarily recognizing the credentials the vets have, and more importantly, the vets didn't see themselves in the jobs that the employers were posting. So we uncovered this proof of concept, wow, maybe there's something to the idea that if we could move our labor market to more of a skills-based market, we could do a lot more matching. Matching of courses, matching of profiles for job seekers, and matching for job postings. Which led us to Monday. On Monday, we wished to gather a group of stakeholders. In follow-up to the President's proposed budget, the President proposed to double the amount of money we spend as a country on skills data. How much do you think that is? Five. The entire labor market, 
billions of dollars of government funding on unemployment benefits and training, on workforce services, etc., instrumented by a ridiculously dinky $5 million operating budget. So a whopping doubling uh, has the potential, the, the, the basis. 33 laws and regulations, uh, essentially uh, billions of dollars of, of worker training, immigration, all kinds of programs and services in the U.S. government. Tied. Are tied to a single database uh, about job occupations and skills that uh, is not sufficiently dynamic, right? And here's the awkward thing. If you were to look at, like you're an infectious disease specialist, and when you leave and you're gonna do some population health thing, you might be a population health coordinator, I'm making it up here, um, ONET will not recognize that as a job. Because it takes a decade for it to update the list of jobs. So it is a very slow, you know, thing. So the gathering asked a few key questions. First question, we've got job postings data to become more transparent because the president asked folks to make a veteran hiring commitment to communicate. Could we make that ubiquitous for everything under all conditions? In other words, could we get more tagged job postings data? Open up more of that information so that we can start to get a signal from the employers about what they're looking for. Secondly, could we build a prototype and eventually scale up what is essentially a public-private partnership to more robustly understand the labor market dynamics? No one firm will be the one king to rule them all, but to are better together. Could the ONET data set be just one hose that feeds into this larger pool that includes LinkedIn data, other data supported by nonprofits like the JP Morgan Chase Skills Initiative, and what we did was to begin the process of fleshing out what attributes these two initiatives might look like. What would a transparency push uh, look like from a technical and deployment phase? And how might we create a minimum viable product around a kind of a big skills platform? And we then did something, Nick did something, that is the heart of these meetings. He asked for public commitment. We asked everyone in the room to raise their hand if they would pledge to participate in the next steps. And the premise being, if we keep the pace at 90-day increments, then we have something to deliver. Now, when we were at the White House, we did this all day and night. This was one of the big tools of the President's toolkit, which is uh, policymaking by public-private partnership and commitment that don't often require laws, money, you know, regulation, uh, just commitment post it on the whitehouse.gov site, and then you can look up the commitments, and people could say, hmm, I guess I gotta do that now. Yeah, if you're gonna commit to the, the president or the White House uh, about a course of action, generally speaking, as a corporation or as a nonprofit, uh, you, you, if you're willing to put that out to the world, you're, you're basically willing to act upon that. And, and now we're testing whether they would commit to the Kennedy School. And so we will learn, hopefully by Friday uh, or early next week, uh, there's a big meeting today at LinkedIn that perhaps a few of the folks in the room will actually make commitments that we can celebrate on our uh, uh, Kennedy School blog or whatever we're calling their medium account or whatever it is, and that we would begin momentum to uh, assemble the cause and then watch them uh, proceed. Uh, one byproduct of this could be a memo, which is that advice to the president on what to do with the doubling of the ONET budget, but that becomes a byproduct of what is essentially an operating uh, entity.
Any questions about the labor market topic before we dive into healthcare? Just to give you a flavor for how we think of policy making in a slightly different way. Yes, of course. Just a quick one. If this doubling of the of the budget will that um, shorten the ten year time frame for updating what's available? Great question. The agency didn't request the money per se, but rather the vice president's skills initiative, which is an initiative the president invoked in the State of the Union uh, a year ago, uh, basically led to the conclusion that if we did a better job, not necessarily uh, updating the data, but so much as making more of the underlying information open, we could fuel new products and services that can help job seekers. And that slightly amorphous concept could either mean, uh, um, right now that, that the agency buys off the shelf you know, a bunch of data products, and they're not allowed to make them available to the public because they bought them from a company. But they bought them because they were trying to produce their like Moses-like tablets. These are the skills of the economy. If they move to more of an open hose model where they're going to consume and publish, that changes a little bit about their operating model. And that might require a good chunk of those resources. Alternatively, they might just say, I'm going to stick with what I'm doing, but I'm going to shorten it from 10 years to five. But we learned in the meeting that the Labor Department's purpose for that study is not so much to be real-time dynamic as much as it is to be a retrospective, longitudinal, authoritative. source authoritative. And I think that's actually an open policy question that we got at at the meeting, but I think it's worth uh, policy students thinking about is if you have an authoritative database from the federal government that is these are the thousand job titles uh, that exist in the economy and you have billions and billions of dollars of worker training, immigration and all kinds of other programs that are built upon it, yet the, the fastest that it can update is three years, right? A, a job title has to exist for three years before it gets uh, uh, incorpor incorporated into this database. There's a 10% turnover rate, so over ten, they do surveys every year, but basically 10% of these thousand job titles kind of change every every year, more or less. Uh, you know, is that a good public policy outcome to have all of these programmatic activities and worker training based upon a set of job titles that may not distinguish a legacy tech job from a new kind of cloud uh, or, or design? Yeah, I don't think crowdsourcing is a known it, by the way. So you're probably like probably. <laughs> yes. So it's a, it's a really it's a really interesting uh, policy question that I think uh, almost should be abstracted from this particular. I mean, this is a very particular database inside, deep inside the federal government that has a, you know a small operating budget that the president has proposed to add to and modernize. But at the same time, it's a uh, we should kind of abstract this and say you know there are lots of authoritative databases in the federal government that then inform, either by law or by regulation, uh, oftentimes billions of dollars of programmatic activity in the federal government. And how do we make sure that those databases, while remaining the authoritative kind of US government or federal government perspective, uh, are perhaps more dynamic? And how do you think about that in a world where uh, uh, job titles are dynamic and the Labor Department's a little worried about, you know, a chief fund officer, maybe that doesn't exist in a couple of years, or, or, I mean, you have titles like that, all right? Growth hacker is 
is basically a, a marketing job in a lot of tech companies and internet companies about how to how to be very data driven in marketing, right? So growth hacking came about the last few years, and now people are putting that out as their official titles. Uh, uh, what does that mean? Well, it's a it's a market it's a very data driven marketing job in internet uh, service companies, right? So how do you, how do you think about kind of authoritative data sources in federal government that drive uh, uh, real programmatic and policy uh, decisions. Any more questions about not just the substance of the meeting, but also the process that, that these commitment ideas come through? Have we, Nancy, do you know if we, in any of our course offerings, do we discuss this idea of policy by commitment? I don't know if that's been trained or the, taught. The other place where I think this, this really has been uh, also pioneered is the Clinton Global Initiative. Yeah, that's where a lot of this had its origin. Right. So, so uh, uh, President Clinton essentially holds an annual conference in New York, and it's now, he, he now holds uh, several of these around the world uh, and in the U.S., uh, but the idea is that corporations, foundations, et cetera, essentially have to uh, make a pledge to do something rather than just come and, and talk. And, and they're actually held to those particular pledges or commitments. Uh, in this case, the enforcement mechanism is you don't get to come to the party the next year. Um, and, uh, but it's actually been very effective in, in driving uh, a number of philanthropic uh, commitments around the world. Uh, this model is actually also used in other contexts. So the one for, for those who are interested in international uh, development, uh, the Open Government Partnership, which President Obama and seven other heads of state and civil society stood up a few years ago, which I had the great honor of, of, of helping operationalize and, and drive forward. Uh, the Open Government Partnership is basically a number of governments, it's now grown to 65 governments, uh, that are determined to make open government commitments. And so they basically, with civil society, work out a plan on anti-corruption, on transparency, on, on a series, uh, on Freedom of Information Act reform, yep. on a series of different, on open data, a series of different things, and governments commit publicly. publicly. And so I was part of this process, it's great fun because we had the president at the UN General Assembly committing to a series of, of actions um, that over the next two years the administration was going to go and implement, and not in isolation, but oftentimes in partnership with, with civil society. So it's a great, the, that commitment model uh, can be used for external parties, right, coming to the White House and you can say, hey, uh, this is something that is not just a federal activity, but this really is, 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 should be a national goal, right? and we want to put, uh, put someone in space, and we should all work towards it, and so there's opportunities for uh, uh, academic or corporate or nonprofit organizations to also commit their plans, sometimes in loose coordination, sometimes just to celebrate all of the activity. But this commitment model is also very effective for getting a bureaucracy to move, and if uh, the administration or the president kind of commits us to a series of activities, which of course are hotly debated and vetted internally, Right? So we have a whole process for that. I don't mean to, I don't mean to uh, uh, suggest that the president casually does this. But once we have committed to the world and to our accountability and good government and, and, and journalists, we then are on the hook for the next two years. So just as one example, on the tech side, uh, the president has committed that the administration is going to release an open source software policy. So that the administration is actually going to talk about uh, uh, how and, and, a, and a series of, of policy commitments around the use of open source software. Now, 
for the for the techies in the room, that's actually a very big deal. Uh, uh, that is software that can be uh, reused uh, by other parts of government, by local and state governments, but also uh, other foreign governments can can copy that that software uh, and make it better. And so it's kind of, and we can do the same. So it's a really great opportunity. Sorry. Yes. So when you meet with LinkedIn, for example, and you're trying to get them to make a commitment, how does that process work? How do you encourage so in, them to so, make a decision? Yeah, so, so number one, uh, first premise. The big challenges the country face are of equal importance to the public and private sector, fixing healthcare, energy, and education slash skills. That there are assets held by the public and private sector that in isolation can only do so much, but together can do more. And so I had approached uh, the CEO of LinkedIn maybe three or four years ago. I met him in my context at the White House, but the first premise was, Let's crawl, walk, run. Open up your skills taxonomy. Offer your staff to do this work. No cost, no fee, no must, no fuss. Just passion. And you find some staffers in this company who are willing to do this and say, run the data against this data set. What do you learn? And then you learn, and you're like, wait a minute. This is actually helping make my own product better. You've trained my machine to be smarter about how to apply this person-based skills concept against the job posting skills-based concept. And Oh, by the way, I just bought a ridiculously expensive company to go do this at large, so I might want to gather the learning and inform. And then you host a meeting like this, and what happens is, before you decide to host the meeting, you call the individual parties who have interests and say, here's what I'm hoping to do. And the hope is that you'll come thinking about, commit. we gave everybody homework before they came over. Then they thought about what role they could play, assuming the conversation went a certain direction, what pre-think what you might want to do on the back end. Foster the conversation in a way that may have shifted their thinking slightly here or there, and maybe make connections in the room that the quarter of a billion dollars that J.P. Morgan Chase has put towards the skills issue, the person who runs that initiative sat right across from the chief data scientist at LinkedIn, who sat right next to the Presidential Innovation Fellow of the Department of Labor, et cetera. And you choreograph those conversations to have one plus one to equal three. And then, this is what we're doing right now, you send an email to an early batch of those folks to say, here's what we think the commitments are that are going to look like on the way out. Do you want to say anything, react to, or do something before we publish this maybe Monday or Tuesday of next week? And so that fosters meetings internally. They have conversation. What do they want to do? We're going to hand-to-hand combat. Hey, company X, you didn't make it to the meeting, but you were thinking about coming, and here's what they're doing, and do you want to join too? And so that is the hope. Now, when we were in uh, the White House, the very obvious thing we would say is, we will gather in 90 days, okay? And someone, Secretary X, Vice President Biden, President, not really President Obama, but you know, important people in the community, will see your results. So it forces you to actually do something because you want to report out to the president or the secretary of health or whatever with nothing to show. So it just became this virtuous cycle of uh, activity. But it's not, you cannot be imposing no value add things on people. You've got to thread the needle to say, you've never had access to some of the raw data that labor has had. If they exposed more of it, what would you do? And how might you contribute what you have? And so there's more of a yin-yang, and then people start to feel opportunity. That's the spirit. There's such a kind of formal way that government typically interacts with the corporate 
community of regulator regulated. Yeah, or here is a formal procurement or a request for information. And so, you know, if the Department of, of Labor sends out a request for information uh, about how to improve Department of Labor's data assets, the chance that the chief data scientist is actually going to read that and then and then take time out of his or her day and respond to that is pretty low. Now, oftentimes we can pick up the phone and encourage that, but that's not really a scalable behavior. Uh, far better to have you know some in-person brainstormings and meetings where we've done some homework and gotten people excited about ways to collaborate. The trick is how can you do this in in an open way so that the opportunity to participate going forward, any corporation or any organization can. And so this whole idea of of how do you publish job postings with a little bit more. Uh, metadata or structure so that the search engines, if you go to Google or Bing or, or Yahoo you, and, and you start searching for jobs, they actually uh, would be able to be surfaced uh, a lot better. That is, is very much of an open play and so even if you weren't at the meeting, uh, you, uh, can participate. you can participate. Yes, of course. And tell us your name. Uh, Ruben. Thank you. Ruben. MBA student here. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in the model uh, policy making by commitment. Um, and I have two particular questions on this. I worked on something similar in the Netherlands, in my country, and it was on the topic of SME financing, and we brought um, institutional investors together, pension funds and insurers, Excellent. and entrepreneurs, and the government, and we tried to make the institutional inf investors pledge to spend more of their assets on SME financing. Um, we faced two problems with this. One is that the institutional investors were very happy to pledge some money for relatively low amounts, so they were thinking, okay, this can give us a lot of good exposure, good media attention because we're doing something that's useful for entrepreneurs. Yes. But they were only willing to give a amount that sounded big, but if you look to the entire problem, it was less than 1% of the total uh, financing market. So that was one thing. And second question is, how can you make it sustainable? So we had this momentum in which there was a lot of media attention, prime minister was involved and everybody was willing to cooperate. But six months later, interest was much lower because yes. the momentum was over. So I think those are two fantastic points, right? They're really fantastic points. One is you have to recognize how recognition and media works in commitments, whether it is uh, a government making commitments or whether it is a government seeking commitments uh, from the private sector, from corporations, uh, and whether you're the uh, Clinton Global Foundation whether you're the U.S. or or, or European government, and you're and you're asking for those those commitments, you absolutely cannot be naive about the uh, the media opportunities and, and kind of the motivations. And I, like most corporations, I'm guessing have a motivation of wanting to do good, uh, but also uh, appreciating the the recognition. And so there's kind of those those sets of motives, and that's totally normal. But I think you have to be eyes wide open. Uh, about the kind of platform that you are providing, make sure that you're doing the, the vetting and thinking through whether those commitments are real and meaningful and additional. So, and, and that's one of the things that in, in the Clinton Global Initiative they spend a lot of time studying, which is how do we make sure that this would not have happened if for our platform or, or summit, right? And that's a really uh, a tough set of questions that they are constantly challenging people who are making uh, uh, commitments. But and if I make a friendly amendment to this, that is the commitment model as a pure model. What we did yesterday, and I'm sorry, Monday and Tuesday, was actually more of a product development model. And let me explain. If you studied SME finance and said, what are some of the root cause problems of why there isn't as much capital flowing? 
what you will learn, and I've only scratched the surface, but what you will learn is that the quality of the data on predicting which loan will default and which one won't is weak. So the, uh, because of the inherent risk model, the banks can only but do so much on their balance sheet. So the question is, how do I de-risk certain investments? And the answer is, in part, potentially, in, in the US model, we have a small business administration. We uh, guarantee and support small business loans. But potentially, we could collect better outcomes data on default rates and attributes of institutions that default and don't default. And if you think about the capacities of big data, if we could take the nation's small business loan portfolio and open source as much of it without violating privacy as possible, I'm not entirely sure of the mechanics, might the net product fuel, because no one bank has enough exposure on a data set. Amazon is a closed loop system. You log in, you shop. If I wanted to know how many people who logged in, clicked this button, bought this item, I can give you recommendations engine up the yin-yang because I can study the feedback loop. Whereas I can only analyze my failure rate in the small business portfolio within my own organization, but so much. But if I could tap into a national feedback loop, this, this dry cleaner applied on this street block and based on our record of history, those tend to perform quite well. Boom, let's put them through the ringer, okay? And so, so in that scenario, it's not so much come here and commit because you're doing something good for the world, it's let's design a product which is a more uh, appropriate uh, risk to reward uh, effort and let's identify what are the assets that if we could release might result in those products being better. So uh, I just made that up. I really have no idea if that actually would work. But my instinct tells me that that conversation would be the worth, worthy one to have, which is what we were talking about with what could the Labor Department contribute in new information that neither LinkedIn or Monster or whomever has today. So the model that we're describing where there's more of a collaboration and brainstorming uh, as it relates to product development or, or ideas to, to make the data flow better and more openly is the minority of situations. I think the more, more situations you see kind of globally and both in governments and outside of governments is kind of a, yeah, pure, right. a pure commitment bonds or, or, or forcing functions on, on commitments. And you do get into this question of, of if it were not for this particular event, would that commitment really have happened? Your second question was around enforcement mechanisms. And so in the open government partnership, there's actually a multilateral organization that federal government, national governments actually fund, uh, the Open Government Partnership, and it has a series of enforcement mechanisms. So civil society, uh, government accountability groups, nonprofits, et cetera, uh, um, they actually grade the federal government on how well it's doing on its series of, of commitments uh, around greater transparency and, 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 and all those things. And then there's actually an independent reporting mechanism. A third party comes in, uh, uh, like the Brookings Institution or some, something like that, usually a think tank or a scholar comes in, and then grades both civil society and, and uh, the, the national governments. And so that's, uh, there's, I think there's an open question about whether there's, that should be that third step, because it's, just, it's a lot of process. But there's a bunch of checks to uh, hold governments accountable 
uh, for the commitments they've made. And then actually, uh, having seen it from the inside, uh, keeps the government uh, accountable in a real way because uh, when we're not living up to a particular commitment, both civil society and the press uh, uh, like to make noise about it. And so it, 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 is, it is very, you can feel that from the inside. Let me quickly shift to the healthcare piece and we'll do that quickly so we can have another conversation about it. Similar, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Chapter one, in the Recovery Act, the president said, if we're gonna fix the delivery system of healthcare, at a minimum, we gotta get the data from manila folders to machines. Too much of healthcare was recorded on paper. I don't know what your experience was with the uh, Southeast DC uh, clinics. We still have paper. Still have paper. That's fair. The industry was, at the time we entered in 09-ish, 5, 10, maybe 15% transformed into digital. And even then, uh, much of that was in blobs of text or less than structured form. So if I literally wanted to query my system, show me all the smokers we have in our population. Partners Healthcare could not run that query in 2009. Gajillion dollar system could not figure out who the smokers were in their population. So we put $30 billion in the Recovery Act towards basically digitizing the manila folder. And we made the judgment to stage gate the program. So we wouldn't shock the system overnight. We would start with take the manila folder and put it into a computer and then start to open up that data and share it with patients or their referring doctors. And that's where we are today. So phase one was digitized. Phase two, enable the sharing of the blobs of material, you know, uh, the blob of a patient summary file across the system. And now we're entering, we believe in the next few months, the government will propose rules for the third round of what it is that the um, recipients of this $30 billion fund should do. And there it's moving away from blobs of, of, of amorphous information to here's my meds list, here's my problem list, here's my um, uh, demographic information including smoking status and vital signs, blood pressure and the like. So this shift from nothing to more structured, analyzable, machine readable data has taken many journeys, but chapter one is the government had been working in this endeavor. And related, you know, chapter 1A there was an effort to work with the private sector to say, uh, let's make it super easy at a minimum for consumers to access their own health data. So Nick and I worked on something called the Blue Button Initiative. And the president made this big speech to the veterans, disabled veterans of America, and he said, I'm gonna give you a blue button. When you log into the veteran portal, uh, you push the button and you can download your personal health data. And Medicare followed suit, and the Defense Department did, and then so did the private sector, and all the retail pharmacies, and Walgreens, and da-da-da. So over 170 million Americans today could push a blue button in a place where they have their data held on their behalf. And that was voluntarily accepted, chapter one. Chapter two, this transition from blob to structured information, and more specifically, the how. What am I gonna do, log into a computer and look at my weird blob of data? Or can I connect an app that promises to do something useful for me? So I'd like to connect an app to my medical record so that it'll tell me you know, when I should be eating healthier and what I should be doing and communicating with my doctor and so forth. 
So in December, a group of uh, electronic health records companies, plus uh, some of us uh, and, and, and others in this sort of uh, ecosystem, funded a technical effort to make it uh, easier both to get the specific pieces of data out, like what your meds list is and so forth, and then to have machines to be able to securely <coughs> connect apps to that data. We wanted to finish the job before the government dictates the final set of rules, presuming that it's better if the private sector self-imposes some of these technologies and then has the government kind of validate and bless as opposed to having someone in the government think that this is the way to go and then impose it on the rest of the, of the industry. So the meeting was about chapter three. There's now a small group of people who've committed uh, on the engineering work to make the health data work more like a data asset for machines to, to work against. But what's needed now are more uh, implementation partners and feedback loops to work with the standards to make sure they actually deliver on their promise and that they can actually achieve uh, the objective, which is to help people live healthier lives. The meeting was organized to get people who had not been participating in this movement to understand it, to participate in it, and then to bring their expertise to bear so that it can scale up and that we can have much faster impact. This uh, effort also overlaid another set of policy requests from the government, which is if you're shopping for health insurance, the most important question people often ask is, is my doctor in the new plan? So you can't go to healthcare.gov and say, I have Dr. Jones. Show me a list of plans that Dr. Jones is in network. You have to today manually search each plan to confirm that Dr. Jones is in the network. So CMS wanted to add another data set, which is the ability to search Dr. Jones across the insurance exchange, and one of the insurance companies to agree to open up that information. So Nick and I hosted this forum to figure out whether or not we could both expand the number of implementers for the electronic health records standard, but as well to get an earlier commitment from the insurance companies to do something that they, not, they may not believe is in their best interest, which is to open up their proprietary network data. We made great progress on the former. We got a ton of organizations to pledge in the room, sign me up, I'm in, uh, and, and we're going to memorialize those in our blog post. And the second is a little more complicated but had more of the public-private variety, which is the insurance companies basically said, Medicare doesn't tell us which doctors accept Medicare. So unless Medicare is going to be better about you know, what doctors are in its network, don't, you, know, how, you can't impose that on us. So you know, you go, for the you go first, first government. You go first government, right. <laughs> so, so what was powerful about that was at now, and when we tried to bring the group together was, OK, let's assume the government did go first. Let's have the private sector help inform the technical approach that the government should use on the presumption that it too would then be probably the one that will be imposed on them. So shape the future and participate even if it's you go first government. And that basically was the resulting action. We already had emails flying, companies talking, engaging, I want to be helpful. And we hope maybe tomorrow, but maybe more likely uh, Monday or Tuesday, we're giving everyone the chance to submit their commitment language, and we're going to put all that up in our in our blog post. Any reaction? Any more? Yeah, no, it's 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 fantastic. Uh, both meetings were uh, a great, uh, not only formal set of collaborations, but also the interstitial. So before and after, you know, you have uh, uh, you know startup entrepreneurs 
executives from hospitals and, and, and insurance companies, the chief data officer of the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, uh, physicians. So you had, you had this good group uh, coming together. And so it's not only what we were able to accomplish formally in the meeting, but also uh, at the sidelines. And I think that's, that's true of any, any fantastic meeting is, is, is some of those things. And so uh, what's fun is to bring the entrepreneurs, you know, the, the, the four people and a dog kind of who, who are trying to change healthcare with the next greatest uh, consumer-focused app. I mean, healthcare is not very consumer-focused. We really haven't woken up the American consumer. Uh, Ed Park likes to say, you know, what, can, what do Americans do really well? They like to shop, right? And we really haven't made it easy. Just think about how difficult it is to shop for health plans and how complicated, you know, co-pays and deductibles and what's a network and, and it, like, it's just really complicated. Like, I think I understand it and, and yet it's still complicated for me. Um, and so if you're not familiar with, with, with all of this, just think about how, how difficult it is. And so how can, we, how can we wake up the American consumer? And I think that will really transform the healthcare system uh, to the better. Questions on that one? Just I'm just curious, did you get Medicare to identify staff? So that one of the- Why, why were they- <coughs> No, 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 it's, it's, it, is, uh, it is a classic problem, uh, uh, which is, and Nick and I have been harping on this theme all week and we want to continue to harp on this theme. What often happens in government is that data that's collected for a use doesn't anticipate its reuse. So there are government data sets, which are largely fraud and abuse kind of data sets, which is, let's figure out if, if we're sending Medicare reimbursement to some fake doctor. So the quality of the data doesn't have to be 100% accurate on the, are the good doctors in and getting paid appropriately, so much as it's focused on this kind of fraud use case. And so if you're trying to repurpose the data that they have to show me the good doctor who's in and what they do, it is uh, often inaccurate. The doctor changed location, they switched their practice names, they're not working here, they're working there. And by and large, those things, even if they're erroneous, don't trigger a fraud alert, okay? So the government isn't as uh, zealous about maintaining the accuracy of this uh, you know, basic uh, uh, database. So what we learned and what we heard in the room was if there's a simple, lightweight, easy method for them to modernize their systems that doesn't require $50 million, 10-year nightmares, there may be a window of opportunity to get that done. In many ways, that's what we did with Blue Button. We basically imposed Medicare to do it before we imposed the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association to do it. And we found the way to do it because we did it super cheap, minimum viable product, lead startup style. And how have you been able to link the, the impact of the, the Blue Button program to health outcomes? Have you, have you been able to so see there's some, some change some, there? So they're mostly anecdotal, right? So there's millions. Uh -huh. So the VA says that millions and millions of Americans, of veterans, have downloaded their information. And they have stories of specific veterans who were seeking care outside of the VA system who brought that list of prescription data, because the blue button expanded to include prescription data. They brought that list of prescription data and a doctor uh, takes a look at it and says, I'm so glad that you brought this to me. I was about to prescribe you X and X would have sent you to the ER. So those are very much stories as opposed to a systematic look at the value of data portability. What I'm really hoping is that 
not just in blue button, but in green button, in more personal data uh, accessibility and portability, that folks study this more rigorously about the value of, of, of having, having your own data and being able to use it with products and services and doctors and, 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 and folks that you trust. Here's the test. As Sylvia Burwell, the secretary of HHS, made the statement, 50% of all Medicare payments to doctors by the year 2018 will shift from the previous model, which is just pay by the drink. You know, you well, saw a patient pay, to pay for uh, quality and outcomes. And here's the point. When you're financially responsible for making sure someone actually took the meds after you prescribed them, you're going to need a method by which you're going to ask, did you take the meds after I prescribed them? And you could do that by phone and leaving voicemails and annoying people, or you could text message and say, hey, the pharmacy you know, hadn't reported that you, you picked it up just yet. Can I help? Is there a problem? And so the real chapter of this uh, impact will be when organizations invest in integrating that blue button capability into how they're delivering care. Right now, it's, we kind of bolted it on as a consumer right. And it's sort of sitting there as a sidecar to the core workflow in the doctor's office. You don't walk into a doctor's office like when you go back to see patients in Southeast. You're not saying, oh, by the way, would you share your blue button file? Because I want to know everything about you from all the other places you've been before you've come to my clinic. I ch chances are you aren't asking for their blue button file because you don't quite know that that's available and how to make it work. We've run experiments where we've asked doctors, hey, ask patients if they'll share their blue button file. They all say yes. And, and I, I remember I went to this clinic in Lynchburg, Virginia, which is home of Jerry Falwell, okay? not the most liberal place in the country. In fact, quite the opposite. And I don't know what their love of Obamacare is in that part of the country. Yet, the doctor, the primary care doctor, started asking patients. And in the first day of the 18 patients he saw that had blue button files, two of them had medication errors, which is to say they had a list of medications that Medicare was paying for different than the list of medications his electronic health record said the patient was on. And that is really important information precisely to what Nick is saying because drugs interact with each other and often can be mis misappropriated. How does the, that get fixed though in the system? No, but then the staff just manually updates yeah. and says to the patient what's going on. Yeah. I mean, the point of information is that you've got to make management judgment about what you do with it. But that, the, the key is you need that data to be liberated. And, and what often happens in our delivery system today is the people who really need healthcare are going to multiple doctors and they're ordering multiple meds. So a professor at the University of Michigan, a graduate student, who actually is working with a project we funded at Harvard called smartplatforms.org, uh, built an app called MedMinify. He had run a study that said, for patients that take five or more meds, how efficient is the cocktail? Because the doctors don't know the other meds that are in the cocktail. And so 41% of the patients that he had evaluated that were taking five or more meds could change the dosage or the number of meds to optimize their care. And that's a massive inefficiency, has implications for health, implications for adherence. If I have to take fewer pills, not more pills, maybe I'll take the fewer pills more frequently, etc. If I could take them one a day as opposed to three a day. So MedMinify was just a graduate student research study that said, hey, give me your meds list and I'll spit back to you an algorithm that says you're, you're, you're not efficiently up. How many doctors do that? I mean, I don't think there's a single doctor I know that's got a MedMinify app. 
right? Uh, uh, or even close to it. It's not even a commercial product. So we have a few minutes left. Yep. Any last questions? Okay. Sure. Um, do you know the international state of play is? Like, in which of these areas are you guys catching up on par and sort of pushing the frontier? So the beauty, sorry for the snake, on with healthcare. The beauty is the international body has actually been formed around the consensus technical standards body called HL7. So the person who is leading the technical development of these standards lives in Australia, Grand Reef. It is inherently international. Now, it is the case that we have done more to empower consumers with their own data than other parts of the world. We haven't seen blue button scale all over the world. But when, when the EU and others learn of the model, they sort of speak nicely of it and attempt to work on their ways to implement. But they don't have the same privacy laws that we do, so they don't really particularly care to tell the patient. They just sort of share their data. You know, and in the Middle East, they just, okay, your, your data is flowing. <laughs> you know, whether you wanted that doctor to know that you had that sore or not is, doesn't matter. Your doctor is going to know. We have rules. Uh, you can't share that data without the patient's consent. Uh, so I was going to say, in the energy context, uh, the, the UK actually tried to legislate uh, this notion that energy companies would give you access to your own data, uh, kind of a personal data or my data approach. They failed, actually, with their legislative approach. Um, and so that's the, one of the things that informed our voluntary approach, where we worked with, uh, one, we have much more state regulation rather than federal regulation, but we worked with state regulators, with the utility companies, with the tech uh, and, and privacy communities to actually come up with a voluntary approach using this commitment model to get utilities to commit to make energy data available back to uh, uh, both consumers as well as businesses in a machine-readable format. And it's actually a standard that the Canadians have adopted, uh, a number of international uh, countries, including uh, India, Spain. India, Spain, uh, um, and, and uh, Italy, are really interested in exploring. And so we see, we see great kind of promise there. Um, so it, it it just depends on what pieces you're talking about. In the open data world, uh, the UK government has done fantastic things, and part of my job was to collaborate with the Canadians, the Mexicans, uh, both formally and, and, and informally, on a host of, of uh, transparency and open data initiatives. Other reactions? Virginia, you were witness to all of this. Can you give us some thoughts? Um, it was a very exciting scene. There was a lot of energy in, in the room, and I thought you were very good at, to your point, about um, facilitating conversations with key stakeholders in the room that you wanted to kind of encourage, um, bringing that out in a natural way. Um, did you see it as a tool of policy making that you would like to invoke in your career? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think that the reason we wanted to have this session was to talk about this. This is a um, I often refer to this as a muscle that we haven't worked out on in the gym all that much. So we're kind of trying to go to the gym and work on the muscle of virtuous ecosystems of yep. data and product development and innovation and that would work. Nancy? I just wonder if you could, I mean you two are very engaging fellows and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the leadership skills that it takes. I mean you brought all these people together but you have to be a very good sort of meeting Maybe. Make this happen. I, you know, here's what's interesting about it. 
Uh, that's very kind of you to say, and maybe there is an element of a little bit of the choreography matters, but maybe it's five to ten percent, not ninety to eighty to ninety percent. And the reason I say that is, if inherently the question is there's there's the small business loan portfolio data that the banks would love to get their teeth on, and the the government would love to foster more SME finance. Inherently, the two should come together in a relatively thoughtful way uh, to get to yes. Now, they may ask the wrong questions because they didn't quite know what it meant, and they might say, oh, I want you to open up all your data with this privacy issues. They may have asked it incorrectly and a more, like, um, uh, uh, kind of a, a poorly phrased question often gets a bad answer. And if you want to get to yes, you've got to be really precise. So I would argue, Nancy, it's more a little bit of my history here at the Kennedy School to know where were the policy levers, where did we have give, and being able to find the give without crossing the line and communicating that in the conversation more so than maybe being a little bit more of a, a better facilitator. Yeah. With this, we have to wrap up. But okay. Um, my question is how effective, I know this has effectively been done with the White House behind it. Yeah. How, how do you think um, moving out of that context where you have a clear power position? Governors, mayors. Yeah. Yeah. Moving to HKS where you might not have that. Well, well the HKS thing, the reason, uh, and truthfully, it's because we were the former, right. you know, whatever. So we sort of have a, we still have the cloud of the White House might be interested in this kind of thing. And we had big people from the administration there. So I, I think it's partially HKS, but it's HKS plus. So uh, I don't want to overstate that. However, the convening of an institution like HKS, where they could bring a chief data officer from HHS and these stakeholders and uh, hospitals, could lead them to each other work on commitments and us just fostering the dialogue. So I'm not dismissive of the notion that other neutral conveners can get things done. I just don't know if it's been attempted in this way yeah. before. And it depends on which, whether you're talking about the commitment piece or you're talking about the brainstorming and facilitation. With, with, and facilitation with data assets. I've seen that second model work at a state level. I've seen it done both by you know the governor and, and state cabinet organizations, but also by oh, re like regional development organizations yeah. and and like tech associations and like Research Triangle Park put together a whole thing yeah. around a data jam and a data palooza. People still respect the Harvard brand and will show up here. There were tweets about the meeting. I'm invited to Harvard for an open health roundtable. I mean, literally, it was that kind of a, a <coughs> and last, Jackie, you get the yeah. final word. Yeah, and this may just take a yes or no answer if I can keep the question short. This reminds me, and I want to know if it's related, to a story I did covering the White House or the Times at the start of Obama's second term. And this goes to public policy making in our polarized times. Environment, yep. I did, the story was about that they intended in the second term to use his convening authority. Yes! And there were two things in particular. One was they brought a bunch of CEOs to the White House yep. to try to get find ways that companies could look at the long to to get the long-term unemployed, to not be turned you off. Got, that's exactly what he did. People that hadn't had a job long. The second one's bringing university heads together. I'm not sure what the point of it was. Cost. Okay, right. Tuition, lowering right. lower the cost of schools. And those, yeah. But I don't know how well they've kept up with those. I don't know how, if there have been other such things, but that was my yeah, so is this uh, commitment, and, is this all then, part of it? Yeah, in both cases, either university presidents or CEOs. Mm -hmm. made, More of the media commitment. Yeah, they made commitments. 
and the way they're essentially White House staff tracks those and then periodically gives them opportunities to kind of reassemble the White House to kind of report progress on those. So those, that is an active model kind of employed in both those, those two cases. Uh, final comment, the long-term unemployed one has the same aspects of the SME finance, which is, you know, will you not discriminate against people who haven't been out of work? Easier said than done. Uh, but if I had a better <coughs> skills map of that person may have been a long-term unemployed, but here's what they're really good at, then I could, so the, 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 the conversation on Monday would, would have a spillover benefit to make the long-term unemployed problem an easier one to address. Thank you guys. Cheers. All right. Um,